0: Turn with me to Matthew 13, and we are looking at verses 31 to 35. Uh, We got started on it last week. We will continue on through today. When we see that in these verses, the Lord gives two more parables. These two parables show that from very small, insignificant beginnings, the kingdom is going to grow in spite of the opposition to ultimately influence the whole world. And the first two parables that he taught, the Four Soils and the wheat and the Tares, talked about the conflict between the kingdom and the world. And they talked about the antagonism of evil and good. Talked about rejection and infiltration by evil. Uh, But the next two parables talk about the victory of the kingdom and its subjects. And in the end, a little tiny mustard seed fills the earth, and the little piece of leaven leavens the whole loaf of bread. So what starts out very small ends up profoundly influencing everything. So let's read through the parable of the mustard seed, and then we will uh, review that and then continue on. He says, verse 31 and 32, he presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Once again, Jesus uses the illustration of a farmer planting in his field, and he plants a crop of mustard. As I told you last time, it was the Romans who first experimented with preparing mustard as a condiment. They mixed unfermented grape juice, known as mustum, in La- uh, it's the Latin word mustum, uh, with ground-up mustard seed paste. And because mustard paste is very spicy and hot, it was called Latin ardens. So they It means hot or flaming. And when you take the must from mustum and the ard from ardens, you get the word mustard that was coined. And uh, there's a wide variety of mustard seeds. They're normally very hot. Uh, The yellow mustard that we typically use here in the United States is from the mildest of all the mustard seeds, all the varieties. And then we mix it with a high proportion of vinegar so it's not hot like other forms of mustard. Uh, But mustard's used has been used as a condiment, a food flavoring. It's used to make a mustard plaster, which is a poultice, to serve as a protective dressing for a wound or to stimulate healing. So it was a valuable crop and resource in biblical times. It was used for all of those purposes. And so the disciples would have been very familiar with seeing uh, plots of large mustard bushes planted for the production of their seeds, and uh, they would have seen the mustard seeds for sale in the local town square on market day, along, of course, with the leaves, uh, which were used as a green. And in uh, verse 32, it says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. As we talked about last week, the critics of Scripture want to attack the Bible. They pounce on that. They say this proves that the Bible's not inerrant because everyone knows that a wild orchid seed is smaller than a mustard seed. And therefore, since Jesus didn't know that, he's not God. Uh, or else they'll say he knew they were wrong but he accommodated their ignorance. Um, So the critics say Jesus is wrong. He's either wrong because he's ignorant or he's wrong because he's going along with their error. Either way you inerrantists are in trouble. And so how do we respond? Well as I pointed out you notice the word garden plants there? The Greek word there refers to garden vegetables. Garden greens that are grown purposely to be eaten. Uh, it refers to plants that are planted as a crop to be eaten in opposition to wild plants like the wild orchid. They, these are agricultural plants which are grown for the purpose of producing edible vegetables, greens and seeds. Of all the seeds that were sown in the east or that are sown there today for the purpose of, of producing edible products, the mustard seed was then and still is today the smallest seed. Uh, Jesus is speaking within a framework in which what he says is exactly correct. When Jesus says a man sowed the smallest seed that's ever sowed, he was absolutely right. Uh, so then, continuing on in verse 32, he says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. When it's fully grown, it's the largest of the garden plants, becomes a tree, so the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And this particular mustard seed grows to into a bush that's normally about seven to eight feet High, which is a very good sized garden plant, Uh, but you notice it's considered to be an herb, mustard. Uh, And frequently, what's unusual about it is that frequently it grows to a height of 12 to 15 feet. Uh, One writer talks about them being higher than a horse and a rider. Uh, Another writer says that the horse and the rider could ride under the branches of the mustard bush. Uh, so that's a big bush, and what the Lord is saying is that you have no real connection between the smallest smallness of the seed and the largeness of the end result. Uh, you have the very small seed issuing in the very largest bush that can grow. Uh, so the parable is not an exaggeration. It is a statement that was commonly understood by the listeners, as are all the parables. Their point is not an exaggeration. Their point is that they are commonly understood facts of life. Now, let me take you a little deeper into this situation. What does the rest of verse 32 say? It says, the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The word nest is from a word which means to dwell in, to make a nest, to pitch one's in, to settle in. In other words, the plant is large enough that birds can build nests in it without any danger of the branches bending or breaking. It became a large, sturdy bush. Now, please understand, Jesus is speaking proverbially. Uh, he He wasn't trying to give a lesson on botany, and people don't need to try to get nitpicky about it. The smallest seed the Jews ever dealt with was the mustard seed, and so mustard seed became a proverbial term for something small. We do the same sort of thing. We might say that someone is as wise as an owl. Uh, We certainly don't mean that the smartest creature in the world is an owl. Um, Or we say someone has a memory like an elephant. We're merely commenting that a person doesn't forget things for a very long time. Elephants do have a very good memory. Science tells us that dolphins have a longer one. But the proverb started with elephants, and so that's what we say. Uh, we use proverbs like that as did the Jews. So Jesus just used one of their proverbs. For example, the Jews talked about a drop of blood as small as a mustard seed. Uh, They talked about a tiny breach of the Mosaic law being a defilement the size of a mustard seed. Uh, They talked about a blemish or a spot on an animal the size of a mustard seed. To this day, the Arabs talk about faith weighing the amount of a mustard seed. And our Lord even used that same little proverb in Matthew 17, 20, where he said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. So he was simply using a story with a proverbial expression that they used and understood. But His, in his marvelous, infinite wisdom, he picked a proverb they used that was correct. Now, you understand what the parable says. But now let me tell you what it means. Uh, First, the kingdom is going to start out very small. Can you imagine how important it was to tell the disciples that? Here they are, just a small little group, being smothered by oppression and rejection and blasphemy, and they're probably thinking and saying, well, there's just a handful of us against the whole world. And Jesus says, that's okay. That's the plan. Uh, Everything starts from something very, very small. And boy, were they small. In fact, at that point, the kingdom was so small, they didn't even recognize that the kingdom was there. Uh, in Acts 1 6, after his resurrection, they're saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? They still didn't realize that the kingdom had arrived. It was so small, it was practically imperceptible. Over in Luke 17, the Pharisees are questioning jesus about the coming of the kingdom and listen how that played out in verses 20 and 21 luke 17. now having been questioned by the pharisees as to when the kingdom of god was coming he answered them and said the kingdom of god is not coming with signs to be observed nor will they say look here or there for behold the kingdom of god is in your midst Uh, i love his answer he says you can't see the kingdom it doesn't come with signs you can't see this form of the kingdom, so you're not going to say, look, there, here it is. and is. You're not going to say, oh, there it is over there, because the kingdom's in your midst. It's already here, guys, but it's a little seed starting out very small. Think about the story, how the story of Jesus began. I mean, when he was born, he's placed in a manger. Think of that stable with its smelly animals and the stench of the manure in that place and a baby laying in the feed trough. And he spends a few years in exile down in Egypt before his family returns to Nazareth, a very small village in Galilee in northern Israel, a village so small and insignificant that years later, Nathaniel would ask the question, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth Nazareth wasn't even on a major road in Galilee. It was just a grease spot on a back road. Uh, It was considered a village for the uncouth, the uncultured, and the uneducated. And think about the team of disciples Jesus chose to follow him. All of them putting together wouldn't add up to a mustard seed. They, none of them came from the religious Jewish religious leadership or from the economic and social aristocracy. They were few in number. They were uneducated, fearful, weak, slow to understand and believe, and generally unqualified to be leaders of any significant earthly kingdom. And despite three years of ministry with them here on the earth after Jesus ascended back to heaven, there were only 120 believers in the church in Jerusalem before the Holy Spirit came. That was the kingdom that Jesus planted here on earth. And when he ascended back to heaven, his kingdom on earth was figuratively and relatively speaking smaller than even a mustard seed. If you you talk to pastors today who have a church of 120 people, many of them feel cheated Uh, I've been told by people many times, oh, our our church is small. We only have about 100 to 120 people. Well, that's the size of the church in Jerusalem before the Holy Spirit came. Uh, And we know from 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that the total number of believers in all of Israel is just over 500. Uh, That's that's only about the size of Lakeside, a a bit smaller, actually. Uh, But look at how God's kingdom has grown since that time. Today there are 2.38 billion people who claim to follow Christ. Of course we know that most of them are Christians in name only, uh, but if only 10% are genuine believers, that's almost 250 million people. Uh, so, And one day it'll fill the earth. So the kingdom started very small, but it ends very large. If you go back through the Old Testament prophets and read what they looked for in the kingdom, it's extent is staggering. For example, in Psalm 72, 8 to 11, It says, may he also have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the desert creatures kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands bring a present. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer tribute and let all kings bow down to him. All nations serve him. That's the extent of the kingdom. That's how big the bush gets. Uh, From a tiny little seed to a massive bush. And that's what Jesus wanted the disciples to see that the largest results come from the smallest beginnings. Isaiah saw the same end result. Isaiah 54, 2 and 3 says, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your seed shall possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Messiah's kingdom shall extend from shore to shore, from one end of the globe to the other. Jeremiah saw it, Amos saw it, Micah saw it, Zechariah saw it, and I could read you scripture after scripture that the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, will spread from sea to sea, from land to land, and cover the globe. And ultimately, the millennial kingdom comes, and Jesus reigns over the whole earth. In Revelation eleven fifteen, it says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his, of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So these parables take us all the way to the millennium, all to the fullness of the ultimate growth of the kingdom. Christ's rule, no matter how insignificant, no matter how despised, appears at first to be small. But it will grow until its consummation will be amazingly out of proportion to its beginning, such as a mustard seed, mustard bush, to its seed. This parable is meant to encourage us. It can be very discouraging, can it, to look around? at all that's going on in our nation and think of how true Christianity is being rejected and marginalized. Uh, it seems like the kingdom of God is losing the battle in our culture. Uh, and if we feel that way, can you imagine how the disciples felt? I mean, when their leaders being blasphemed in their presence, the sense of hopelessness and defeat must have been overwhelming, especially when John the Baptist came and he was such an impressive figure and the people are flocking out to hear him and it looked like everything that was needed for the kingdom to be established was going to happen and John was saying he must increase but I must decrease and they're all getting caught up in the sweep of establishing the kingdom and then the crowds came and Jesus is performing miracles and healings and they can see it all beginning to happen but then something shifted and there began to be mounting hate and bitterness and rejection. And so the Lord says it's going to start small, but it's going to end up big, and we're going to win in the end. The kingdom is going to stretch across the face of the earth and on into eternity forever and ever, and we're going to be a part of that eternal kingdom. Then there's another point I think is interesting. Jesus says this bush gets so big that the birds of the air come and take up their residence and build their nest in it and live in its branches. Now what do those birds represent? Well, there are some interpreters who think they represent demons uh, because back in the parable of the sower, they represented Satan coming to snatch away the seed of the gospel. But remember this, just because they represent Satan in that parable doesn't mean they have to represent him in all the parables. Uh, There's no reason to expect a given figure to always represent the same thing. And the idea of these birds being demons or evil is alien to the context of this parable. So I think there are two thoughts here. First of all, it tells us that the bush is so big that birds can nest in it. There's shade and protection in the tree. Second, these birds live in the tree. Uh, you know why they live there? Because there's seeds in the mustard bush for them to eat. There's, there's food in the tree. They don't need to go searching for food anywhere else. You always read about a mother birds going to find Food for their chicks, but the mother bird in this bush can stay home because the food's already there. Now, so look for me for a moment at what I think is a great explanation of this back in Daniel 4. Daniel 4. You can turn there. Uh, You know, one of the things I think many evangelicals do is ignore the Old Testament and its connection to the New Testament. Uh, They focus so much on the New Testament, they overlook how it sheds light on the Old Testament and vice versa. Uh, Dr. Walter Kaiser is one of the foremost Old Testament scholars of our day. Uh, He was the commencement speaker when I graduated from seminary. And uh, I remember him saying that many people have asked him, Dr. Kaiser, you focus so much on the Old Testament. Don't you like the New Testament? And he said, I tell them, yes, I love the New Testament. Because it reminds me so much of the Old Testament. (laughs) Now now I want us us to see one of those connections to the Old Testament uh, that often gets overlooked when we study the New Testament. Look at Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, greatest of all the world empires, had a dream, and this dream's really interesting. Starting in verse 10, Nebuchadnezzar says, Now these were the visions in my head as I lay on my bed, I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the middle midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky inhabited its branches, and all flesh fed itself from it. Now what is this? What in the world is he looking at? Well, Daniel answers that in verse 20. He says, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which there was food for all, under which the beasts of the field inhabited and whose branches the birds of the sky dwelt, (coughs) it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your greatness has become even greater and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. So what's Daniel saying? He's saying that the Babylonian empire had become like a tree. And all the nations of the world were finding their comfort, their security, their food in that tree. Babylon brought culture and education and architecture and economic stability and prosperity to the world. And with those things, a sense of peace. And the beasts and birds that were fed by the tree represent all the nations... That were dependent upon and benefiting from the Babylonian Empire. Now flip over to Ezekiel 31. Ezekiel 31, verses 3 to 6. And here we read these it says, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and lofty in height, and its top was among the clouds. The waters made it grow and the deep made it high. With its rivers it was going all around its planting place and sent out its conduits to all the trees of the field. Therefore its height was loftier than all the trees of the field and its boughs became many and its branches long because many waters, because of many waters as it spread them out. All the birds of the sky nested in its boughs and under its branches and all the beasts of the field gave birth and all great nations lived under its shade." This is saying that when you have one massive, dominant world power, a lot of other little ones get sheltered in the branches. Now, we could take that politically in today and we could say that traditionally and historically, for example, the United States has been a great tree in which many, many other countries, nations have been sheltered in our branches. Uh, They have benefited from our foreign aid, our education, military strength, and many other ways. So that's the secular illustration that he's using. Now, when you bring that to Matthew and to what Jesus is saying, he's saying that ultimately, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, grows so extensive that nations find their shelter and protection in the kingdom. So then bushes are... So then the birds are not part of the mustard bush. They're not necessarily a part of the kingdom. <coughs> they just benefit by its presence on the earth, just as the non-Babylonians benefited by the presence of the Babylonian empire. That's what you have to understand as you study the kingdom. Sometimes the kingdom refers specifically to the true saints in the kingdom. Sometimes it's bigger than that. And this, in this sense, it is bigger you're looking at the kingdom in terms of god's sovereign rulership over everything think of it this way wherever christianity flourishes the people who climb in the branches prosper because of the flourishing of christianity even though they don't know christ america grew into the dominant country that it was historically because of its christian heritage but and there have been a lot of birds in our bush they're not christians but they benefit the dignity of life in America, the jurisprudence system, the law, the sense of right and wrong that's traditionally been ours, our education, free enterprise, the dignity of women and children, all of these rise out of Christian truth. Now because our nation has abandoned those underpinnings and turned its back on protecting unborn children and corrupted our legal system and what's right and wrong, we're witnessing the degradation of our nation and the diminishing of its influence in our world. Other nations are leaving the shade and protection of our tree for other trees to roost in. and But with every great reformation, every reform movement in history has had its roots in biblical truth. Wherever the kingdom has extended, you have an environment of protection for the people who aren't even truly a part of that kingdom. To use an analogy, it's kind of like what 1 Corinthians 7.14 talks about where it says that if you're married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever wants to stay, let him stay because he's sanctified in the presence of the believer. Uh, in other words, an unbeliever married to a believer benefits just by hanging around someone who's receiving the blessings of God. The unbeliever is sheltered in the believer's tree and receives some of the blessings that God gives to the believer. So when the kingdom expands around the world, the people find lodging, who find lodging within that kingdom, are the most blessed people in terms of human life. And what the parable is trying to tell us is that in spite of the opposition, in spite of the three bad soils, in spite of the presence of the tares, we're going to win. The kingdom is going to grow and grow and grow and grow. That's the promise of the Lord to encourage us. So we're not a poor little group of people trying to hold the fort. We're on the winning side and the kingdom is growing and it will continue to grow. That's the point Jesus is making. Well, let's as we continue, Jesus tells them another parable in verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three Seda of flour until it was all leavened. This is perhaps the shortest of all Jesus' parables, but it didn't need to be any longer because it taught the same message as the parable of the mustard seed. But this parable has been greatly misunderstood. As always, Jesus constructed the parable out of a common experience of his hearers. In every household, the woman responsible for baking would save a piece of leavened dough from a rising batch just before it was baked. And when the next batch of dough was mixed, she took that saved portion from the previous batch and mixed it into the new, in order that its leaven or yeast would ferment that new batch of dough and make it rise. And don't be confused by the word which is literally translated as hid. You see that she hid in the there? Uh, in Greek, the word was used to mean to conceal in something else or to mix in, to intermix. The lady making the bread isn't trying to hide the leaven. She's mixing it in with into the flour. But you'll notice that it's mixed into three measures of flour. The New American Standard uses the word pex. Uh, my Legacy Standard Bible uses the word sada or sada. Uh, sada is actually the right way to say it which is a, it's a plural form of this Greek word, satan, satan. Uh, a satan was the equivalent of about 16 pounds of flour. So three sata would be about 48 pounds. Uh, now that's a massive amount of dough, uh, but it's not uncommon. It was not uncommon for them to prepare that much bread. Bread was the staple of life. The families were large. And if they had slaves and servants in the household who had to be fed also, they made great amounts of bread. Now, just as a side note, if you go back and look at Scripture, you'll find that when Yahweh and the two angels visited Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, it says that Sarah made bread. You know how much she made? She used three sayas of flour, which was about 28 pounds. Uh, Three sayas made up an ephah. In Judges 6, 19, when Yahweh appeared to Gideon, it says he prepared bread using an ephah flour. That's the same amount that Abraham and Sarah used. So three measures of flour, whether it was three seahs in the Old Testament or three Sada in the New Testament, was apparently a common amount to use on special occasions. Uh, now, Jesus didn't tell this story just to entertain his listeners, but to teach them certain principles. The first principle is that small things can have great influence in the way that a small piece of leavened dough can permeate a large amount of unleavened dough so that it will rise. The the power of the kingdom is great, Uh, far greater than its initial size and appearance would suggest. The smallest part of the kingdom that is placed into the world is sure to have influence because it contains the power of God's own spirit. It's very parallel it's to the smallest seed resulting in the largest bush. The second point of the parable is that influence is positive. You know, leavened bread, leavened bread has always been considered tastier and more enjoyable than unleavened bread. Um, unleavened bread is flat, hard, dry, unappetizing stuff. Uh, leavened bread is soft and spongy and warm and good and tasty uh, to symbolize their break with their former life in Egypt. When the Israelites left Egypt, God commanded his people to eat only unleavened bread the night that the angel of death killed all of the firstborn in Egypt. And God established the feast of unleavened bread, which began on each subsequent Passover and lasted for seven days. They were not even allowed to have any leavened in their houses during the seven days of the feast. But the bread they ate the rest of the year was leavened and perfectly acceptable to Yahweh. Uh, To the average person in Jesus' day, there was no evidence that leaven carried any connotation of evil or corruption. In fact, the ancient rabbis often referred to leaven in a favorable way. Uh, One of them wrote, greatest peace, in that peace is to the earth as leaven is to the dough. Uh, When a Jewish girl was married, her mother would give her a small piece of leavened dough from a batch baked just before the wedding. Uh, And that gift, simple as it was, was among the most cherished that the bride received because it represented the love and blessedness of the household in which she grew up and it would be carried on into the household she was about to establish. Now, because leaven causes fermentation... Some interpreters insist that in Scripture it had always signified that which is evil and corrupting when it's used figuratively. But I have several problems with that view. First, it doesn't fit the context, particularly in this parable. Uh, This parable is dealing with the power of the kingdom to overcome the evil of the world. So that view is inconsistent with Jesus' point in this parable. Second, the verse says this, The kingdom of heaven is like what? Like what? Leaven. The kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were asked what leaven refers to based on that statement, what would you say? You'd say the kingdom of heaven, right? You don't really have to be a Phi Beta Kappa or a member of Mensa to figure that out. And to take leaven as representing evil that permeates the kingdom is to twist the obvious meaning and construction of words whether in the Greek or English text and it doesn't fit Jesus' development of this group of parables in which this one parallels the mustard seed. They both illustrate the power of the kingdom to overcome the resistance and opposition illustrated in the parables of the soils and the wheat and the tares. So it becomes patently obvious to me that when it says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that means that the leaven refers to the kingdom of heaven and that's a good thing. The kingdom of heaven is good and its influence is that which makes it uh, what it influences better than leaven does with bread. Uh, now as at this point we need to examine the major argument of those who consider leaven to be evil here in this verse. This is their argument. They say that everywhere else in the New Testament leaven always refers to evil. Therefore, we must be consistent here. And so they will say that even Jesus uses it to refer to evil. So how do we answer that argument? Well, let's think this through. I know that a lot of you have probably been taught the same thing previously, so listen carefully. Leaven never inherently refers to evil. Okay? That is not its intention. You might say, well, Bruce, what about Luke 12, 1, where Jesus said, be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, I don't deny that Jesus was using leaven there to represent something evil, namely hypocrisy. But what Jesus was saying is that just as leaven has a permeating influence on bread, so too hypocrisy has a permeating influence in the lives and teaching of the Pharisees. You see, leaven is only an analogy for permeating influence. So the point of using the leaven to describe the hypocrisy of the Pharisees was that the hypocrisy of the Pharisees affects them the way leaven affects bread. It permeates everything they do. Leaven is not an illustration of sin or evil. It is an illustration of permeation. That's very important. They were permeated with hypocrisy, of which leaven is an apt analogy. If you take leaven any further than that, you've destroyed its analogy. Leaven is not simply an analogy of something evil, it's an analogy of something that permeates. Let me say this another way, and this is something you might find helpful. You can't take analogies and turn them into absolute theological terms. In other words, leaven is only an illustration and does not have an absolute theological meaning. You can't assign it an absolute theological meaning so that every time you read the word leaven, you've got a reference to sin. It's only an analogy. It's only an illustration. If you do that, you'll really have a lot of trouble when you get into the Old Testament and you get to the Feast of Pentecost and all the Jews were commanded by God to offer him leavened bread. Uh, Are they offering evil to God? Of course not. You, You see, you can't do that with a simple analogy or illustration. You've got to go beyond the term itself. Its basic meaning is to illustrate permeation. That is the analogy in its usefulness. And as you look in the New Testament, it's used several times. For example, in Galatians 5.9, Paul uses leaven to illustrate the tremendous influence of legalism. He writes, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf, the whole lump. Again, he's not saying that leaven is a sin of legalism, but rather that legalism has a tremendous permeating influence. In 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul indicts the Corinthians for grossly tolerating for arrogantly tolerating gross immorality in the church and boasting about their indifference, he uses the same well-known proverb that he used in Galatians and that Jesus has in mind in this parable. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's using leaven as an illustration that failure to deal with sin in the church will end up permeating the entire church with immorality. We have the same similar analogy that the Bible doesn't use, but it illustrates the same thing. We say one rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. So regardless of what the sin is, whether it's hypocrisy or legalism or immorality, if it's not dealt with, it will permeate those who are affected by it. That's the reason the reference to leaven is used. It is only an illustration of that which permeates. So then, going back to our parable in Matthew, you can't take the term leaven and give it an absolute theological meaning of evil. You have to use it as an analogy of that which permeates. And there is just as much right to use it as an analogy of that which permeates for good as an analogy of that which permeates for evil. So you can't extrapolate from the ways it's used elsewhere and say, it must be speaking of kingdom of evil in God's kingdom. Leaven can be used to represent permeation in a good sense, can be used in an evil sense, or a morally and spiritually neutral sense, depending on how it's used. Pervasive influence is its most obvious and distinct characteristic. And so the leaven is the kingdom of heaven that's placed in the world. A massive ball of dough is the world. And from the inside, the kingdom begins to ferment and change that dough until it permeates the whole thing. And it's true that Christianity permeates the world in a sense, doesn't it? It per- it influences it for good, but it's sometimes painful for the world to endure it. I always think of what Ahab said when Elijah showed up and he saw him face to face. You remember what he said? Is it you, the troubler of Israel? Uh And that's the way the world reacts to the prophet of God. Uh, In Thessalonica, they said, These men who have upset the world have come here also. In Philippi, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion. Believers have been disturbing people for 2,000 years. But look at the results. You start out with 120 little disciples. They're banded together in Jerusalem, and look at today. Billions across the face of the earth have been influenced by Christianity to the point that where all of the social advances, all of the legal and jurisprudence systems, all of the welfare and education and art and music and everything reflects the influence of Christianity. We even refer to the countries in which Christianity has had the greatest permeating influence as what? The developed nations. All of these things that help the poor and give aid to those who are downtrodden and depressed comes out of the spirit of Christ put through the hearts of his people who are leaven in the world. If you don't believe that's true, go to the countries that have never known the touch of Christianity and see how they treat people. The world has been leavened. It's been influenced dramatically in an incredible way. What hopeful parable for the disciples who were so discouraged and distressed That the Lord wasn't bringing the kingdom in its fullness. What's going to happen to this tiny little group? Jesus says you're like leaven and you're going to bubble and ferment. And before it's older, you're going to permeate the whole thing. Third lesson from this parable is that the positive influence of the kingdom comes from within. The woman in the parable had to hide the leaven in the flower in order for it to have any influence. In order for us to have the kind of deep penetrating influence that God intends for us to have, he has to place his leaven inside the world. The reason he lets the two grow together is so that we can influence. This is the time for men and women to be saved. This is the time for Christianity to do its work. The world, and we don't often think of it this way, but the world has been injected with eternal life and it's spreading. So we, as we come into the Christmas season, I think about that little tiny piece of leaven that was planted in the incarnation. That little babe in Bethlehem. That little piece of leaven plunged into the world ultimately will dominate the world. Ultimately, every knee will bow. And here we are extensions of that same eternal life. Christ dwells in you. Christ dwells in me. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The life of Christ in you and me is leavening the world and influencing, and the influence moves and grows. We don't need a political party to do it. We don't need to have the President of the United States on our side. We don't have to have the organization of government to do it. We don't have to have laws and armies to march and dominate the world of Christianity. No, we can just begin to move from a small beginning. It's incredible, isn't it, how Christianity moves in its influence. Matthew 24, 14 this is the gospel of the, this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come the kingdom of heaven is going to continue to extend and permeate everything and then and finally our lord will come and wrap up his kingdom let me wrap this up with these thoughts the latest statistics indicate that there are more people who say they are christians in the world than any other religion on the face of the earth 2 three, eight billion people identify themselves as Christians. The second Islam, is Islam with 1.9 billion. In other words, almost one out of every three people in the world claims to be Christians. Now I know that the number of true Christians is quite a bit smaller than that, uh, but the influence of Christianity in our world is incredible. Of course, Christianity has been radically distorted in many times and places, but nonetheless, the kingdom has moved through the world and our words, Lord's word is true. Even in places where the gospel is banned, the kingdom is permeated. In communist China today, it's estimated there are about 100 million Christians meeting in house churches all over the country. That's 7% of their population. We think about communist Cuba, just 90 miles off our coast. Did you know there are about 25,000 evangelical and Protestant churches meeting in various places around that island today? Uh, and in each individual country, of which individual country in the world would you think you would find the world's fastest growing evangelical church? Iran. In the southwestern region of Iran, far away from the influence of the Ayatollahs in Tehran, Christianity is flourishing. The most recent estimate is that conservatively, there are approximately one million Christians in Iran with most of them belonging to the underground house church movement. Admittedly, that's a little more than 1% of the country's population. But missiologists tell us that after living under the repressive Islamic regime for the past 40 years, Iranians have become some of the most open people to the gospel in the world, and Christianity is growing faster in the Islamic Republic than in any other country. Lesson June Duran, Beth Sparks' parents Spent 20 years in Iran as missionaries until the radical Islamists overthrew the Shah and they had to leave. Many years later, Les told me, Bruce, the Ayatollahs have done more for the cause of Christ in Iran than all of us missionaries did in 20 years. What he meant is their efforts to destroy the church have resulted in phenomenal growth. What did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it despite great persecution and the threat of death at their cult. Iranians keep on quietly evangelizing their families and friends and meeting in small house churches to worship the Lord and spread the script, study the scriptures. God's kingdom is permeating the world in the most difficult of places. You realize that when the church met in Jerusalem, it took them seven years before they established the first mission church in Antioch, and today there are 430,000 full-time Christian missionaries serving in other countries. Over 80% of the world's population has all or part of the Bible in their own language. Isn't that amazing? That's the influence of Christianity. On which continents is Christianity growing the most? Africa, Latin America, and Asia. It's declining in America and Europe, but it's booming in those other places, particularly Africa. Yes, much of it isn't sound evangelical Christianity, but it's still permeating and influencing the culture of those nations and continents. Christians have built hospitals, schools, and universities all over the world in order to bring healing and education to the people of those countries. They wanted to show the compassion of Christ to the hurting and sick, and to teach people to read so they could study God's word. And even to this day, there are hundreds of Christian hospitals all over the world. Get this, some of those Christian hospitals are in places like China, Iran, and India, countries that are hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they want good health care. So despite the birds that snatch the seed, despite the scorching sun of persecution, despite the briars of worldly pursuits that choke out some, there's still some good soil. And despite the presence of the tares that are being oversown in the field, the wheat is growing. And with all of its evil opposition, the mustard seed grows bigger and the leaven influences more. Christ is building his kingdom and the day will come when it all reaches a climax. Revelation 11.15 says, Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That's where it's going ultimately. Jesus wins and he will reign. Evil will be destroyed. Those who reject him will be sent to eternal hell. The kingdom will come in its eternal fullness. So the parable of the leaven is a parable of hope. Christ's kingdom is completely permeating and influencing the world. And so we come to the end of these two parables. Any comments or questions? Yes? I can't say the verse exactly, but somewhere in the Old Testament it says something like, do not despise the day of small things. Is that familiar to you? No. I'd have to look at it and study it in context. Always remember the first three rules of biblical interpretation. Context, context, context. Okay? All right. Let's be dismissed and go and worship the Lord together in our worship service.